turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We finish our four-part series on the book of Malachi. We've talked about Reformation me and Reformation we as we look at God's message through the prophet Malachi to the people and by extension God's message to us as he calls on us to look at our heart, as he calls on us to look at our lives, as he not only calls on us to look at them, but that he himself is about the work of reforming us and transforming us. And so we uh, come to him this morning and pray that he'll do that. Father, we pray that you would transform our hearts today by the work of your Holy Spirit through the message of your word. We thank you so much that you love us, that you treasure us enough uh, to work in our lives in powerful ways and sometimes uh, filled with uh, joy and, and uh, even happiness and a sense of lightness and other times through difficulty. But we thank you that you love us enough to work in our hearts to transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin our reading this morning with Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. We'll be reading to the end of the book, which is chapter 4, uh, verse 6. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him, before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, we started this series looking at the fact that God says at the outset, chapter 1, verse 2, I love you. The creator of the universe says, I love you. And the people respond, how do you love us? They respond with cynicism. You have a funny way of showing us you love us, God. And so, if we have a cynical heart before God, Maybe we need a little heart transformation. Where are you coming from this morning? Well, the people were cynical because they were looking for the presence of God in their lives and in their nation. And there had been three 
worship places designated by God for the Israelites. The first was created in the wilderness as they wandered from Egypt into the land of Canaan. The tabernacle, and when it was set up precisely as God had instructed, then God came in a very dramatic way with the cloud by day and the fire by night, and his presence was with the people of God. And then centuries later, when the temple was built by Solomon, again, according to the direction of God, God came and his presence was manifest in the temple in a very dramatic way. And then the children of Israel disobeyed God. They did not keep the the covenant uh, God gave through Moses. And they experienced the covenant curses, failing to keep the covenant. And they were sent into exile into Babylon. And they came back from Babylon, as God had promised. And they uh, were to come back as a purified people. And God instructed them to build a third worship uh, building. The, The last had been destroyed. Uh, when the country was sacked, and so they uh, built a temple, and they waited. And uh, they said, the temple's built according to your instruction, and here's God. Drum roll, please. Here's God. And God did not appear. He did not show up. There was no dramatic appearing of God after the exile in the temple. And so the people said, God, you're not with us, and things were going rather poorly for them. And so they became very cynical, even at the direction, even at the direct intervention of the prophet of God saying, I love you. Well, what we find here as encouragement to the people of Israel is that God says, I, in fact, will come. I will appear. I will come to my temple. And when God comes, there's always comfort. But when God shows up, it's not always comfortable. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. We didn't read that this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, you might want to turn to that. We find that God is sending two messengers. He's sending one to come in advance of him coming to the temple. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this messenger is referred to in chapter 4, verse 5. We read that earlier. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet the great and, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. When you go to the New Testament, some of you New Testament students know exactly who it is that fulfilled this prophecy. Some 500 years after this prophecy was proclaimed, John the Baptist came. Uh, Dean read of John the Baptist. In fact, one of the statements in what he read today was a quote from Malachi chapter 4, a prophetic utterance related to the arrival of John the Baptist. He was the messenger that would come and prepare the way for the one true God, Yahweh. We see this in the New Testament. For instance, Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, Jesus' disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come 
And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was the messenger that was to come in anticipation of the Lord, Yahweh, to use the Old Testament name for the one true God, coming to the temple. But we also read there's this second messenger here, the messenger of the covenant. And when you look at how uh, it's put together, the messenger of the covenant is the Lord himself. Who is the messenger of the new covenant? The messenger of the new covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can Yahweh come to the temple and how can Yahweh send a messenger, the messenger of the covenant? Well, this is an Old Testament reference to what theologians call the Trinity. We have God sending God to the temple in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. And we get this sort of language of the same and different in the book of John. The Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of God, of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The second person of the Trinity existed from all eternity. He was with God, and he was God. And then John goes on to say the Word became flesh. So the messenger of the covenant was none other than God himself come in the form of Jesus Christ. Again, prophesied 500 years before the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And this was the messenger of a new covenant. It was a better covenant. The Bible said that the covenant given to Moses was not effective in bringing salvation. Because there were covenant blessings and covenant curses for keeping that covenant. And guess what? Everybody failed. Everybody, by rights, were to receive covenant curses. Everything that you do, everything to be done in the book of the law, you are to do. You are to perform them. The people said, we will do this, and they did not do that. They did not do that. You do not do that. I do not do that. We look at the summary of it in the Ten Commandments. All of us have broken the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed. All of us have failed to obey the law of God. And so Jesus Christ came as the one who was going to cut a new covenant in his own blood. Because the law said that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And the new covenant came to do this. Jesus Christ came to be cursed for you and for me. The new covenant was about. He came to experience the covenant curses for those who did not obey the covenant. He himself perfectly obeyed. The Bible said he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in God's sight, Jesus came to take on the punishment, the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. He came in our place. And so the principle is the principle of what? The principle of the new covenant is the principle of faith and of trust and reliance 
in what Jesus did, not what I did. The Apostle Paul said, the new covenant, in it nobody can boast. Because it's not about our works. It's about the work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death on the cross as we trust in him. That's the wonder of the new covenant that even here in the book of Malachi, uh, we hear him speak of. Jesus came, and in his first coming, he came to save. He said, I did not come to condemn the world. Jesus came to save the world, to give his life up as a ransom for many. But his second coming will be a coming of judgment. And in between, there's time for repentance, for the message of God to go out. And for those of you who know Jesus Christ, who've been made part of this new covenant relationship with God, it matters not what your ethnic background is, what your socioeconomic background is, what your nationality is. It's on the basis of faith and him alone. We are all united together as the people of God who believe. And if you do believe, then God is doing something in you between his first and his second coming. His coming, Jesus' coming, and the outpouring of the Spirit, which resulted after that, the third person of the Trinity, is something that brings comfort, but oftentimes is not comfortable as he does his work in our lives. And we see this here, chapter 3, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. God is doing his work in your life. He is refining you with fire. And fire is not particularly comfortable. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has promised that he will refine all of our hearts He will do his reformation. He will not leave us as we were. He goes on to say in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter says, yes, we go through the refiner's fire, but we're rejoicing because it is a sign that he is going to return and that he is present and that he is working in our lives. And God has promised to come to the temple, and we know in the New Testament the prophecy fulfilled that we, the people of God, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God resides in us collectively in His people. And His presence in your life and in my life is comforting, but it is also something that is uncomfortable. In what ways is God making you uncomfortable? How is he refining your faith to 
today. Resist the temptation to react like the hearers of Malachi's message reacted, at least a good number of them, to say, you love me, but you don't really love me. God showed up, and the people of Malachi's day were uncomfortable. And if you do not grow cynical under the refiner's fire, then something else will happen. You will become more loving. You will begin to exhibit the love that the Father has for you. You will know it as part of the experience of a Father in heaven who cares for you and will not leave you the same. Well, we find in Malachi's day that there were people that actually responded to the message and they responded positively and God did work on their hearts. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son. One of the things that we should take away from this is then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. We need to encourage one another in the reality that God is, in fact, at work in our lives. As we go through difficulties, as we go through trials, as we go through the refining process, we need to encourage one another that, in fact, God is at work. Now, we need to be careful. The Bible says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so it's not necessarily helpful when somebody is experiencing deep uh, agony and difficulty to come to them and say, you know, everything's going to work out just fine. God promises all things will work together for those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. While that is true, as individuals, may I counsel you as a congregation to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And it's actually easier for me as the preacher speaking as a Malachi, God's messenger, to you today that that is true. And God uses that to confirm that into your heart even now before you go through trials or as you're going through trials that that is in fact true. We need to speak to one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another, not to give way to cynicism. We call this process fellowship. We fellowship with one another. And we know that God loves us. And the Bible says here that we are his treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We are loved by God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his wondrous, marvelous light. But there is a distinction here between those that know God's love and those who are cherished by God and those who are not, between the righteous and the wicked. That's one, then once more, verse 18, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. Now, we need to be careful here 
uh, not to uh, think that somehow this righteousness uh, is a self-righteousness. Again, if you are part of the covenant community, been made part of the uh, new covenant, you are righteous first and foremost because of the work of Jesus Christ in that you rest in his righteousness, not your own righteousness. And that we should come to him with gratitude, knowing that we deserve nothing other than the judgment of God, but instead we are accepted in his sight and we are considered holy and righteous by the work that Jesus Christ himself is doing. And I think it is very easy for us to, um, to think of ourselves as righteous and others as unrighteous, those unrighteous bad people. In 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on the moral character of public officials. Um, and uh, if you were, uh, say, younger than mid-30s, you don't know what was going on at that time. Uh, but there was something going on in our nation in terms of our uh, presidential politics. And it said this, therefore be it resolved that we, the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting June 9th through 11th, 1998 in Salt Lake City, Utah, affirm the moral character, that moral character matters to God and should matter to all citizens, especially God's people when choosing, choosing public leaders. And be it further resolved that we implore our government leaders to live by the highest standards of morality, both in their private actions and in their public duties and thereby serve as models of moral excellence and character. And be it finally resolved that we urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. And this was not something that was reserved to the Southern Baptists. Many denominations uh, did this. James Dobson, uh, a very respected and followed Christian leader, uh, said this at the time, we're facing a profound moral crisis, not only because one man has disgraced us, but because our people no longer recognize the nature of evil. And when a nation reaches the state of deprav that state of depravity, judgment is a certainty. James Dobson said in 1998, character does matter. You can't run a family, let alone a country, without it. How foolish to believe that a person who lacks honesty and moral integrity is qualified to lead a nation. 2016, James Dobson said about our president-elect, I'm not under any illusions that he is an outstanding moral example. It's a cliche, but true, we are electing a commander-in-chief, not a theologian-in-chief. Now, why do I bring this up? If the pollsters are correct, and we know they always are, uh, four out of five evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And so what I'm about to say, I'm saying to you, right? I'm not saying it to a blog out there. I'm not saying it to uh, the people of the country. I'm saying it to you who... Many of you, most of you, would consider yourself evangelicals. And I would say similar things, a similar challenge, if four out of five 
voted for Hillary Clinton. There would be another aspect of that if they were uh, neglecting uh, the moral aspects of voting for Hillary Clinton. And here's my point, that somehow something happened between 1998 and 2016, at least with some people, with some of our Christian leaders, and potentially with some of us, that what was a huge deal in terms of sin, all of a sudden is not such a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not a political endorsement or a lack of a political endorsement. It's just saying this. Oftentimes, we look at somebody else's sin and we think they're really bad. They're really sinful. They're the righteous and they're the wicked. But somehow, we can dismiss some sin and overlook it while taking other sin very seriously. What am I saying? I'm saying, if you were self-deceived, would you know it? What about the sin in your life? What about the sin in my life? We come in faith, understanding that we rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that sin is sinful. And that our sin is sinful and worthy of judgment. Now, Having said that, we also look forward to the day when justice will come. We look forward to the day when God will judge wicked and evil. I remember a friend of mine, uh, when I was in college, was, uh, was very upset uh, when somebody stole the battery out of his car. And remember, at that time, I hadn't had much bad happen in my life, and he hadn't had much bad happen in his life. And he said, I feel so violated. Um, and it's really true. You know, when somebody steals or mistreats you or abuses you or somebody you love and care about, um, you feel violated. And so it is right to look toward that day when Jesus Christ is going to return and he is going to make everything right. He is going to judge with justice. He's going to judge wickedness. And he's going to change everything. He's going to make, uh, he's going to dry every tear. And so we look forward to that time when he is coming back. And we can rejoice. The reason why I can rejoice at the second coming is because I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know he's going to make everything right. And so in Malachi chapter 4, verse verse 1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be nothing left of evil on the planet. And then in very positive terms, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We look forward to that day, and that day will come, it says, like the sunrise with healing in its wings, and that is a poetic image of the rays of the sun rising. 
I, I ran cross country when I was in high school and we did kind of a fundraiser uh, one, one day and we did a 24 hour relay. 24 hour relay was this, that you ran uh, one mile every hour and passed the baton to somebody else to run one mile every hour and you did it for 24 hours. I ran, you know, 10, 12, 15 miles at a time, figure how difficult could that be? Um, and so, you know, we started off and things were pretty easy. We started at seven in the morning and uh, we went and, and, and things were okay, you know, until you get to about midnight uh, after 12 hours and it's dark. And then about two o'clock in the morning, it is really hard. About three o'clock in the morning, it is utterly depressing. And am I going to be able to complete this? Am I going to be able to do this? And at four o'clock in the morning, you just think it can't, you can't possibly make it one more mile around the track. And then what happens? The sun rises. And something happens with healing in its wings. And somehow you can make it to the end. Now, I wasn't exactly skipping like calves being released from the stall. Uh, that's what the Lord says is going to happen when he returns for those who love his appearing. Now, some of you uh, will be skipping about like calves. I was, I was walking through uh, the hospital visiting one of our members um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was coming up a four, uh, four little steps. And so I just kind of uh, ran right up those steps uh, instead of walking. And there was a woman who was coming up the steps with me, and she said, I wish I could do that. And I just was taken back a little bit. And I'm, I mean, I'm not the most uh, limber and nimble person, uh, but she was, uh, she was just wishing she could do that too. And for some of you, you will mount up with wings like eagles. Uh, you will run and not grow weary. Aren't you going to look forward to that uh, when that happens? Literally and figuratively, some of you are young. Some of you are young, but you wouldn't say I'm skipping about like calves in my heart. Uh, we look forward to the time when Jesus Christ is going to return. His second coming, he will make everything right. Justice will be served, and we will live with him forever in a perfect new heaven and new earth. And so in between that time, though, we need to realize that there's change that needs to happen in our lives. That's why I kind of gave the example I gave. We need to examine our hearts. Where is it that God needs to do his work? And we don't have to pretend that we're better than we are because we have been forgiven and accepted and treasured. And so we can admit our flaws, we can admit our sins, and we could be um, active participants in God's work in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ through his refining fire. We're saved by grace. But God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart to do what the old covenant could not do. The new covenant gives us the ability more and more to serve God and to love God and to love others. I'm part of a, uh, a committee now in the state of Florida. It's the, the RUF, Reformed University Fellowship Joint Committee. I used to work for that ministry and so now I get my college student fix by going to these meetings and hearing from campus ministers about their uh, ministries. And one particular campus minister talked about a guy in his ministry who was not a Christian, not a believer in Jesus Christ, very open, said, hey, I, 
I like you guys. I like coming here. I like hearing what you have to say, but I don't believe it, but um, I'm open. And uh, he said several weeks ago, he just noticed a change uh, in this person. And the campus minister said to him, are, are you okay? So you just seem different. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, like three weeks ago, I became a Christian. He said, I, you know, I understand. I put my faith in Jesus. And he said, I'm no longer angry. Now, the campus minister said, I didn't know he was angry. I didn't know that was kind of his M.O. Uh, but something dramatic happened in his life when he came to faith in Christ and Christ began to work in his life. We receive a new, soft, responsive heart. Now, sometimes the work of God is very dramatic like that, but oftentimes it's not. It takes the refining work of God. And God is at work in you. And so how is God at work in you? What is he doing in your life? How do you need to develop a new heart? Where do you need to be more faithful to your spouse? Where do you need to trust God more? What would change in your life if you believed the word of God? You need to develop a new heart for the weak and for the marginalized. How might you help them? These are just some of the things that are brought up in the book of Malachi. God is refining you. That's something to be excited about. Have you given up? Are you cynical about the process? Are you discouraged? Are you thinking, I'll never change? Don't you believe it? I'm going to end with an illustration uh, from a veteran, um, an Army veteran, somebody who was an Army Ranger. I mentioned him before. His name's Tommy. And Tommy uh, went into the military at age 17, uh, and by the age of 19, he was a sergeant, a battalion, a ranger battalion sergeant. And um, he, he became a Christian right before he went into the military, okay? And so if you have served in the military, uh, uh, I, I applaud you, but you might know it's not necessarily the most nurturing place for your new faith in Jesus Christ. And he said... Tommy said, I realized I had the filthiest mouth in the world, uh, just like every one of my fellow rangers. And he said, I was genuinely convicted that every word that comes out of my mouth is a four-letter word. And he said, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I didn't really know what a Christian was, but I knew that I should be fighting against that. And so I endeavored to not do that. So Tommy was a, a sergeant. He had his own room as a result in the barracks. And one night he got a knock at his door, and there was a private. We'll call him Private Ranger Stevens. He wasn't his, that wasn't his real name. And uh, he said, Sergeant Allen, I've got a question. And he'd clearly been thinking about something. And he said, uh, What is it, Stevens? He was suspicious. And he said, You know, I've been watching you, and I noticed that you don't cuss as much as the other guys key term there was as much. Uh, you don't cuss as, the, uh, as much as the other NCOs. Why is that? And Tommy said, why do you want to know? He said, I don't know. It just bothered me. I was curious. I was thinking about, and, and I said, I'm going to ask him. And Tommy says, and so I told him. I said, I'd become a Christian a couple years ago. And honestly, I don't know a Baptist from a Catholic, but I know that so this is something that I shouldn't be doing. 
so I've really been struggling not to do that. And he said, okay. And I told him, Jesus changed me. Tommy goes on to say, now he didn't become a Christian right then, uh, but you know, he went out, he found a Bible study, and he started going to church. And within a couple months, he actually had become a Christian. And then he was killed. He was gone. But in that short window of time, he became a Christian. Now, why did he become a Christian? In part, because God put it on the heart of a young, immature Christian to admit their sin, to admit his need, and to rely on the power of God. And the power of God became apparent in his life. And it was appealing and it was attractive. And so whatever God has laid on your heart this morning, where he needs to work on your heart to reform you, understand this, that the Spirit of God is at work in you, and the experiences in your life are there for a purpose, that God is refining your heart. I can't wait to see Jesus when Jesus makes all things right. But until then, he will do his work of reformation in our lives. Let's go ahead and continue to worship by singing of this reality. Rise up, O church of God, be done with lesser things. Turn to hymn 293. Let's stand and sing together.